Welcome to the weekly podcast from Faith Community Church in Janesville, Wisconsin. For more information about Faith Community, please visit our website at www.faithcommunitychurch.net or check us out on Facebook by searching Faith Community Church Janesville. You can also reach us by email at podcast at faithjanesville.org. You can be a part of this ministry and help advance the kingdom by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a five-star review. This helps us spread the word of God in the podcast world, allowing us to better reach more people in the name of Christ. Good morning. I just want to welcome you. I'm so glad that you're here with us to to worship and to uh, invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts. When joining us online, I just also want to say thank you and glad that you're with us. It's good to be together this morning. I want to talk to you about identification, and I'm not talking about like the noun, like an ID card or anything like that, but in the verb. form, the, the sense, the, the way that we do things in order to connect with people, to build a bond, to help them feel a little bit more at ease with us. And we, we all do these things, and, and we all do them in different ways, in different contexts. Sometimes we might dress a certain way in order to identify with a group or a certain position, like a uniform identifies us in a certain uh, role or t- uh, position. Uh, we might learn a language. Uh, to be, better be able to communicate with people. Um, that's something that we often do. We might avoid or actually purposefully engage in specific behavior in order to feel more comfortable or help other people feel more comfortable with us. These things help us communicate. They help to bring down um, barriers between people and like I said, we, we all do them in different ways. I'll give you a, a really simple example. Now, a lot of you guys know that Joy and I became grandparents this year for the first time. So you knew this was coming. This is Leah. Our, she's our seven-month-old granddaughter. She's just the cutest uh, thing, most adorable little seven-month-old in the world. Now, when Leah comes over to spend time at our house, this is not how I greet her. Well, good morning, Leah. It's it's good to see you this morning. I'm just ecstatic that you've decided to join us today. I, I've come up with a list of things that we could do. I've placed the itinerary on the uh, counter. I'd like you to take a look at that and, and be prepared for it. That's not what I do, right? Leah comes in. I just turn into a big puddle of goo like, oh, there she is. It's so good to see. Oh, hi, sweetie. It's good to see <laughs> And that helps me connect with her. She can't understand all those words, but when I speak that way, when I come down on her level, she feels more comfortable, she laughs, she smiles, and it just, uh, we connect, right? We can be motivated by many different things sometimes when we want people to identify us. Some motivations are good, some are not so good. I'm going to introduce you to Frank here. Frank learned that he had a very good, uh, he, he was very skilled at helping people feel comfortable with him and, and building their confidence in him. 
at the age of 15 in the early 1960s, he began taking advantage of this skill that he had, and he would convince people uh, that he held certain positions or had certain training. He would cash checks uh, and, and steal money over the course of his career, building, having people build confidence in him. Uh, and this is according to his own testimony, his own words. He, he at times impersonated airline pilots, a uh, doctor, a lawyer. Now keep in mind, we're taking his word for this. He was a con artist. How much of this is true, it's difficult to say, but these are all things that he said he was able to do. What was he motivated by? Greed, money, sense of adventure. And actually, as a 15-year-old boy, when he was first getting started, he said his initial motivation was to meet girls. Not a good motivation, right? This is Frank Abagnale. And in the 1980s, he wrote his story uh, called Catch Me If You Can. And then there was a movie made about his life as well, and maybe you saw that. I want to introduce you to one more person this morning. This is Casper. You can see he is an, an old man in this picture. He was a shopkeeper and a watchmaker in his hometown in the Netherlands. He also chose to be identified with a group now, his choice to be identified with this group didn't bring wealth or attention or popularity into his life. It brought just the opposite. In fact, it brought abuse and increased discrimination and ultimately his family being arrested and his death. He was motivated by compassion and love and justice. In 1944, when the Nazis came to his town in the Netherlands and forced the Jews to wear the Star of David, Casper chose to identify with them, even though he wasn't Jewish, and he also wore the star. This is Casper Tenboom, the father of Corey Tenboom, who wrote about her family's experience in her book called The Hiding Place, which was also turned into a movie. We're going to talk a little bit more about Casper later. Or take Paul. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 22, what does he tell us? He says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. So why did Casper or Paul do this? Even when it caused suffering and brought hardship and trial into their life? They were following Jesus' example. Now, we've embarked on this project together. We're calling the Gospel Project. Have you been enjoying our weeks together so far? Good, because we've got about 115 weeks to go, a couple years at least. And what we're digging into are, are what are those events, those truths, those passions that shaped Jesus' life and, and, and drove his ministry? We've, we've learned already about the immortal Jesus, who was part of the Godhead and one with the Father, that this infinite Jesus wrapped himself in our finite flesh and became one of us. That he grew as a normal child would through infancy and childhood. And the last time we encountered Jesus, last week, he was 12 years old. And we saw him in the temple as he expounded and challenged the brightest in the most intelligent religious minds of his day. And they wondered and they awed at his understanding and his insight of God's word. 
of his word. We're going to move to his first public uh, arrival on, on the public stage today as we dig in to the account of his baptism. But I want to give you a challenge this morning. I'm not sure, when you come to church and when you come to service, I'm not sure what you're expecting. I don't know if you uh, are ready to receive something from God. I, I don't know if you are, are ready to, to record or write things down. We do have service notebooks. If you haven't picked one of those up yet, I really encourage you to do that. But this is my challenge to you this morning. We are covering three verses today. Mark 1, verses 9 through 11. But there are so many deep truths and principles and concepts that these three verses touch on. There's no way that I could do them all justice. In fact, the last day and a half of my sermon preparation time, uh, usually and especially with this message, is going through and cutting things out. I can't get into that. I can't get into that. So I think that there's going to be something today that you hear, and it might just spark a question. It might, it might grab your attention, or it, it, it might just kind of uh, quicken or, or bring to life your imagination. And I want you to remember that. Write that down, and then later this week, pray about that. Spend time digging into it, looking into God's Word. We have so many resources to, to dig into His truth. So I want you to do that this morning and commit to doing that. So let's turn to our passage in Mark chapter 1, and we'll take these verses one at a time. Let's look at verse 9. It says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. At what time? The Gospel of Luke clarifies for us that John began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So this would have been around the fall of uh, 26 A.D., We know that John ministered for about six months prior to this. John would go on to minister for another six months or so after the baptism of Jesus, before his arrest. So this this would have been probably in the spring of, of, of 27 AD, somewhere around there. It says that Jesus came from Nazareth. Remember I said the last place we encountered Jesus and his family were in the temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus was 12 years old. Jesus is now about 30 years old. 18 years of his life is summed up in that phrase, Jesus came from Nazareth. What was he doing all of that time? We're not told explicitly. And I think from that, we can assume that Jesus was probably living a very normal life. He was the son of a carpenter, so he would be learning that trade. The the account of Jesus in the temple with his parents, Mary, and his, his earthly adopted father, Joseph, that's the last account in the Gospels we have of Joseph. And so it's reasonable to assume that during this time, Joseph has passed away. And so Jesus, as the oldest son, would have, like I said, learned that trade, carried on that business, cared for his family, protected his family. And now he's come to take his place on the public stage. It says that he was baptized by John. And we really haven't dug into who John the Baptist is. And again, I can just highlight a few things this morning but there's a lot here. We know that John was a relative of Jesus, right? When Mary found out she was pregnant, she went and stayed with what's uh, the word is her kinswoman, her relative Elizabeth, who was John's mother and was also pregnant with John at that time. 
Elizabeth was married to Zechariah, so those were John's parents. We don't know exactly what the nature of their relationship was, but they were part of the same family, the bigger family. So there was a relation there. And so Jesus and John would have been aware of each other, would have known of each other. It's hard to say exactly how much time they may have spent together. We know from a pretty early age, John kind of led a, a, a life of isolation in the wilderness as God prepared him for the work that he was going to do. And, and right away in the Gospels, beginning the very the first thing we read in the Gospel of Mark and early in the Gospel of Luke as well, we, we see John take his place that God had prepared him for. All the Gospels attest to who John is by pointing back to the prophecy in Isaiah. Let's read that this morning. So from Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, A voice of one calling in, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so this uh, is who John is. And he understands his role is to preach repentance and confession of sin, to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. And as John read the Old Testament and he, and he read those verses, he, he was preaching that as the Messiah came, that with him would come his, his judgment and, and the fulfillment of all of those prophecies about the coming king and the Messiah. And so John understood that, that this is who he was and that he was preparing the people for Messiah's coming. And it says that he was baptizing. Okay? Baptism would not have been like a, a strange or, or an alien thought to, to the Jews. They were familiar with ceremonial washing for purification uh, that was prescribed at different times and, and for different reasons. So they understood the general concept, but what was unique about John's message was this urgency with which he, that he attached to it, that the Messiah is coming, that you don't want to be caught in a state of rebellion, and that the sin doesn't come from those external things that we may touch or that we may eat, but the sin is in our heart and we need to confess it and repent of it so that we can escape the coming judgment. So as we understand that about John's message and about what he was calling people to do, that should raise a question for us. Because here comes Jesus and he says, John, baptize me. Did Jesus have sin to confess? And repent of? He didn't. There's been lots of different answers um, and opinions given over the centuries, but let's go right to the source. Why does Jesus say that he underwent this baptism? And we can read his question or his answer to that question in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. John, John was hesitant. He, he, he tried to, to convince Jesus, no, we, we've got this backwards. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus' response to John in verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, that, that contains the answer to the question, why was Jesus baptized? And righteousness is one of those big theological concepts and those big words that we see all throughout Scripture. And, and depending on the context, it can, it can have some, some different connotations, but kind of a basic ground-level foundational understanding about righteousness is that it means to conform to God's standard. 
In short, it means to obey God's will. And Jesus understood that God had required and asked of him to undergo this baptism and for John to baptize him. And so he said, in doing this, we're obeying God. Some people sometimes wonder if, if, if going through this baptism was required to fulfill all righteousness. Does that mean that prior to the baptism, Jesus somehow was lacking in righteousness? No, of course not. And I think one way we can kind of understand that is uh, I played baseball in high school and maybe some of you guys follow baseball. I don't know, I don't think a player has ever maintained this for very long, but if, if a baseball player gets a hit every time they're up to bat, if they have a perfect record in hitting, we say they're batting a thousand, right? They're perfect. But every time they come up to the plate in order to maintain that perfection, what do they have to do? They have to get a hit. Jesus was perfect and sinless before this moment, and he understood that to continue in that perfection, God was asking him to undergo this. Now, that's kind of a surface-level understanding of this phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. And as we dig in a little bit more this morning, we're going to see there's a lot more underneath this. So let's continue reading. In verse 10 of Mark 1, says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Can you imagine seeing the sky and the clouds torn open? That's, that's a, a word that's not used a whole lot in, in the New Testament. One other example of where it's used is in the temple at the time of Jesus' crucifixion the veil, the, the curtain that separated uh, the holiest place in the temple, which represented that presence of God, that veil was torn and, and ripped from the top down. Well, here God tears the sky, and the Spirit descends like a dove. Not that it embodied a dove or something like that, but it descended like a dove. And it's easy for us to recognize these as, you know, extraordinary events, but kind of miss their tie to the Old Testament and the significance of them. In Isaiah 63, Isaiah is calling and pleading with God to speak to his people, to communicate with them, to, to respond to their desperation in verses 17 through 19. And then as he Transitions into chapter 64, the first verse in Isaiah 64 says this, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And what does God do in Mark chapter 1? Tears open the heavens and his spirit comes down. This is fulfilling what had been uh, mentioned in Isaiah we see another reference to the, the Spirit coming down in, in Isaiah chapter 11 as well. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, will remain on him. And we can learn uh, from John the Baptist's own account that this was a sign, this was a signal that he was actively 
waiting for, searching for, and that when he saw this happen, he would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this person was God's chosen Messiah. Look with me in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 32. John, the Baptist, told about seeing the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending from heaven and resting upon Jesus. I didn't know he was the one, John said again, but at the time God sent me to baptize, he told me, when you see the Holy Spirit descending and resting upon someone, he is the one who you, uh, the one you are looking for. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God fulfills these things uh, on this day at the time of Jesus' baptism. And, and the descending of the dove, what this is showing, what this is representing to us is that this is Jesus' public anointing into this position that he has been called and, and chosen for. It's, his, it's God's public declaration identifying Jesus in this Role. In the Old Testament, kings and priests and prophets, they would have a, a, a public anointing ceremony and, and oil would be placed on their heads. Oil represents that, the Spirit of God, His presence, and, and also the empowering of the Holy Spirit to, to fulfill what they had been called to do, their office or their title or their role, whatever that was. And so here we see the, the, the anointing, the public anointing of Jesus. The Holy Spirit coming down and remaining on him, empowering him for his ministry. And you might ask, well, if Jesus was God, and he was, why did he need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? I mean, if Jesus was God, can't he just do these things on his own? Let's take a look at Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7 where Paul writes, Jesus, who being in very nature God, yes, he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clutched onto. Uh, let's go back. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Thank you. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of his servant being made in human likeness. Rather, he made himself nothing. Other translations say he emptied himself. He didn't become less of who he was. He's still God. But he chose to willingly limit his, his divine uh, qualities and choose to rely on the empowering of the Holy Spirit during his time here on earth. And that's important because Jesus came to be an example for us, right? But if, if Jesus exhibits these great demonstrations of faith and, and miraculous powers, all because, well, that's just who he is, that doesn't really give us an example to follow because we're not God. But by Jesus choosing to make himself nothing or to empty himself or to willingly rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, now we do have an example that we can follow. So we're also called because we are anointed as well. And our, we don't have a public anointing ceremony, but at the time of our regeneration, at the time of our new life, when we give our hearts to God and submit to him, the Holy Spirit comes and abides, remains in us as well. Therefore, the Holy Spirit empowers us 
for our mission. And we have to remember this. Why do we have to remember this? Living out our mission is tough. It's difficult, right? Have you ever struggled to obey God 100% of the time? (laughs) Yeah, we do. God calls us to some big things. Husbands, God calls us to love our wives unconditionally, to love our wives as he loves the church. That's really hard for me sometimes because I can be selfish and I can struggle with that. Wives, he calls you to respect your husbands. Not 50%, not 80%, not if they deserve it. He calls you to respect and honor your husbands unconditionally. That can be hard. We know that God's will for us, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Anybody have trouble with some of those sometimes? I do. So we need to remember that it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to carry out the will that God gives us. Uh, and the plan and purpose that God lays out for us. Remember Philippians 4.13, we can do all things through him who gives me strength, not in my own strength. When you feel like you can't do something, and we've all said that, I'm sure, right? I can't. I can't do that, God. Remember that he can do it through you in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I love the song that we sang this morning about um, the battle belongs to God, right? So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees, with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Every fear, I'll, I'll lay at your feet because the battle belongs to you, God. Let's look at verse 11. God goes on to say he's, he's torn open the sky, the, the spirit descends, and, and God says, you are my son whom I love. You know what God is saying here? You, Jesus, you are the promised king. And you might say, uh, Pastor Jesse, I think you've got a different translation than I have. What we can miss is the significance of God identifying Jesus as his son. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God's promise to David about an heir and a kingdom. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne in his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Verse 16 says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Another uh, place where this is made clear is Psalm 2. The psalmist writes, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He has, he said to me, quote, you are my son, Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Can you imagine hearing God's voice? And yes, Jesus was God, but he had emotion. He had a heart. So to, to know that you know, God uh, was recognizing his act of submission, was pleased with what he was doing, I'm sure that that was encouraging to Jesus. 
Imagine the excitement and the anticipation of John the Baptist and the disciples and others who had been listening to John because they would have recognized this connection with God saying, this is my son, and they would recognize what that meant, that this is the promised king who will initiate this kingdom that will endure forever. At that point, I just got to think they were starting to run through their mental checklist. All right, we're going to be headed to Jerusalem after this. Let's grab our stuff. Hey, guys, we're really excited. And why would they think that? Well, remember Isaiah 11? It talked about Jesse's uh, lineage. Um, Later in that chapter, verse 10, it says this, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people, and the nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. They were ready to march to Jerusalem for Jesus to take his spot. I'm sure they were getting ready for that. What they missed or forgot or or just didn't really yet understand is this truth that, yes, the kingdom was being inaugurated right now, but not yet culminated. Look with me at Psalm 110. Do you know that that this passage, verse 1, is the most often quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Take your spot of authority and, and your royal position until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see that one word in there, until, lets us know that there is going to be a season of time where Jesus is declared and takes his seat as the kingdom and the king, but there will be a season of time that follows before all of the enemies would be put under his feet. God hadn't hidden this truth from men, but they, they missed that. God's kingdom has come. Yes, that is true. But there was and, and there is still a season of time in store before his kingdom is universally recognized which means during this season of time, there's still struggle. There is still difficulty. There is still suffering. They're temporary, but they're still very real. And Jesus would, would, um, sorry, and, and so if we finish out God's statement, his declaration of verse 11, he says, you are my son whom I love, identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise. And then he says, with you, I am well pleased. That must have, again, like I said, been a a, a tremendous encouragement to Jesus as he began his ministry. God's approval being expressed for all to hear. Jesus would go on to teach his disciples that God's approval should be the only one that we desire in carrying out our mission as well. Do you ever let other people start to tell you who they think you are? And you start to bring those uh, truths, which aren't really true, and identify with those, and that causes pain and discouragement, confusion, anxiety. I'm going to pull off my best Pastor Gary impersonation here. How's that working for you? Okay? Seek his approval above all else. So this statement with you, I am well pleased, again, what God is saying is that, Jesus, there's going to be suffering as you serve. 
And again, this is connected to, to passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, this section of Isaiah, along with the others that we'll put up on the screen here, this is a collection of passages in Isaiah that we refer to as servant songs, and they, and they highlight the identification of the Messiah, traits about him, but also highlight the suffering that he will endure, the rejection that he will feel. Yes, ultimately there will be victory and exaltation, but it will come through a, a path of suffering and difficulty. So why was Jesus baptized? Let's go back to that. Let's leave this up for a minute. Leave the servant songs up. If you want to snap a picture of those, um, you can also just search them online, servant songs, and, and you'll find them. Let's go back to our question. Why was Jesus baptized? To fulfill all righteousness, he said. You see, Jesus' baptism symbolized his complete submission to all he was called to suffer in order to fulfill God's will and purpose for him. That act of submitting to the baptism, Jesus had all of these things in mind, and he said, yes, God, I receive these things. I accept this path. Did you know that Jesus actually used the word baptism to refer to his suffering and his death? He did. Look in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, or Luke chapter 12, verse 50. So he's tying this act of submission in his will directly to the suffering that he will endure. He's accepting this as part of his purpose. He's embracing it as an essential part of his mission. It's just as amazing to me that Jesus' very first act on the public stage wasn't a miracle or a demonstration of power or some glorious encounter. It was a simple act of submitting to the Father's will. His heart that cried out, above all else, I commit to doing your will, Father. So just think about this. Jesus, the very embodiment of righteousness, identifies with our weakness, with our sin, with our brokenness, so that we as sinners could be identified by his righteousness. Does that sound familiar to you? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' understanding of his identity and his commitment to fully submitting to all aspects of it drove his mission. And I have to ask you this morning, does it drive yours? Remember Casper? He was arrested with his family during a Gestapo raid in their home, and he died shortly after his imprisonment on March 9th of 1944. We have an account written by his grandson, Peter, where he, Peter remembers Casper's last words to him. I'll just read that to you this morning. It says, The long hours crept by slowly as we stood there facing the yellow brick wall. My heart was full of questions. I kept thinking of the Psalms which Grandfather had read the evening before. After our imprisonment, we had been taken to the police station at Harlem. In the gymnasium there, with 30 other prisoners lying and sitting on the floor around him, Grandfather had taken his Bible and had read the 91st Psalm. How peaceful those words had sounded to our anxious 
souls. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. But now, standing in the corner of the prison, doubt filled my heart. A thousand shall fall at thy side, grandfather had read, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh to thee. But tragedy had struck. Where was the host of angels we had prayed so often for? Had God forgotten us? Then I glanced over at grandfather sitting in the corner. There was such an expression of peace on his pale face that I could not help marveling. He actually was protected. God had built a fence around him. And suddenly I knew the everlasting arms are around all of us. God does not make mistakes. He is at the controls. At last, they took me to my cell. As I walked past grandfather, I stopped and bent over and kissed him goodbye. He looked at me and said, my boy, are we not a privileged generation? Those were his last words to me. You see, like Jesus, Casper's hope his joy, his confidence, they were all rooted in his understanding of his identity in God and God's eyes and his desire to live in obedience for God, to God's purpose and plan for him. So again, I ask, are yours? See, by fully submitting to God's will, It affects or produces acceptance of our mission. In essence, living in obedience to God's will helps us to receive and accept even the difficult circumstances because we know it's not an accident. We know that God hasn't forgotten us. But there's something in going through this suffering, this trial, which will bring glory to God. And we say, yes, Father, I'll do that. Accepting even these struggles or even persecutions if they should happen to come as part of your mission, as part of your purpose and your call, that's not easy. But remember, God delights in you. God empowers you through his spirit so that you can do this. So why was Jesus baptized? He was willing to be baptized to identify with us And now we are baptized to identify with him and submitting our lives to the Father as well. Would you pray with me? God, we are just humbled and in in awe and wonder at, at your goodness and your love for us, the plan that you have for us. God, as your children, it can be difficult when when that will leads us through that valley, the shadow of death. We don't like to be there, God. It causes us to ask questions. It causes us to wonder what's happening. Lord, may we express the same level of faith and trust that we see in Jesus' life and other believers throughout history. May we walk in obedience to your will in every area, God, so we can have that contentment and that peace knowing that you are pleased with us. Pray these things in your name. Amen.
Just a couple uh, announcements I need to give you this morning. We have started our growth groups, our Growing Up Together groups, and I hope that you've gotten it plugged into one. If not, we're a couple weeks in, but that's okay. We still would like you to join a group. There's a table uh, right outside the wall here. There's books there, a list of the different groups so you can see the schedule. We really encourage you. Uh, It's during these discussions that we can encourage each other and pray for each other. In fact, what did we talk about this last week? Knowing the will of God, being willing to commit to doing it. So it's amazing uh, how these things come together. We just strongly encourage you to to plug in, um, and we'll help you do that. Last thing, also a very timely announcement, is that October 10th, coming up, we're having a baptism service. So as we've reflected on Jesus' baptism today and his, that commitment that he made, submitting his life to the will of the Father, if that's not something that you've done publicly, uh, we encourage you to take that step as a believer. There's a required class next Sunday, October 3rd, that uh, we ask you to come to following the 10 o'clock service, and then the baptism itself will be the 10th of October. Okay, I think that's it. Go ahead and have a, uh, have a stand. <laughs> okay, my talk is all, all right. My brain's shutting down, so we better end this quickly. But um, again, there's so much here, guys. So I, I, ho- I really do hope that you take that challenge, that you dig in this week to some of these truths and these concepts. I know that you will be blessed as you do that. Let me just pray for us as we go. Father, thank you so much for meeting with us and being here today as we, as your children, gather to lift up your name and praise you. Go with us, Father, now and help us to engage with your presence and your spirit with each step and each day. May you receive all honor and glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, guys.
Thanks for tuning in to the Faith Community Church Podcast. We are glad that you joined us and hope that you were blessed by the message. If you would like to join us in the ministry of sharing the Word of God, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review. This helps us build the analytics of the channel, allowing us to better reach people in the name of Christ. Go be the light in your family, your community, and your church. God bless you.